this morning we're carrying on with the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 6 and it's probably a good place to stop and to consider what the state of the church was by this point. Lots of stuff has happened to Jesus' disciples, to his followers since his death, his resurrection and his ascension. So what is the state of the church by the time we get to Acts chapter 6? Well, of course, a pivotal moment in the life of the church, the birth of the church really, was Pentecost. The coming of God to dwell within, to empower his people, to do his work, concludes with this description, doesn't it? That about 3,000 people were added to their number. A little bit later, it says that every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. The church was a growing church. And of course, it wasn't all plain sailing. Very early in the life of this newborn church, there was opposition, significant opposition. We read in chapter 4 that they, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders, in Jerusalem. They ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But that didn't really feel like an option in the earliest disciples' minds. They responded, chapter 4 verse 20, we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're unable to keep this inside what we have received from God. So instead of listening to the authorities, they prayed about it. And it wasn't praying about whether they should carry on or whether they should stop. You know, Lord, give us wisdom. They asked God for boldness. Boldness in him to carry on just as they had been up until those threats were made. Lord, consider their threats, they pray. Grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you, God, stretch out your hand for healing, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's the kind of the attitude that embodied the church. God heard their prayers. God responded to their prayers. And the church just became this wonderful place. I, I loved John's description last week when he was considering about Peter and others being released from prison. And that little line about they spoke the word of life. You know, these were a people, this was a church that wherever they went, life was being spread in Jesus' name. You can sort of picture that, that there would be shoots, green grass, buds growing and blossoming on the trees. God heard their prayers. God responded to their prayers and life went wherever they did. And now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed any of their possessions as their own. There was not a needy person among them. Now, that's not to say that they didn't carry on facing opposition and other such problems. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, instead of using what they had, the 
truth about Jesus, the, the gifts that God had given them, instead of using them to bless those around them, as Barnabas had done, singled out as a, an example of this, they thought that they could manipulate the circumstances to earn for themselves a, a good reputation. They could use the things that God had given them to lift themselves up. And it didn't go well. And those people who had been making threats previously against speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, they didn't just disappear. They continued to oppose and to make threats. Threats that soon enough we'll read would become reality. But by the time we get to chapter 6, where we are this morning, in verse 1, this is the reality of it all. That they, the disciples of the church, rejoiced that they were counted worthy of being treated shamefully on behalf of the name, the name of Jesus. And the disciples, the followers of Jesus, were increasing in number. That's the state of the church. In spite of persecution, in spite of opposition, um, opportunism even within the church, it is growing and the people are being transformed inside and out and it is beautiful. But problems persist. In fact, problems appear in different directions. With growth, we understand, comes growing pains. If Satan couldn't derail this work of God through threats or through hypocrisy springing up, then perhaps he'll try distractions. Chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Acts says this, In those days, when the numbers of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, the, the Greek kind of Jews, among them complained that the Hebraic Jews um, were neglecting their widows because they were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Back in chapter 4, it was this beautiful picture of the spirit-filled, spirit-transformed people giving freely from the, for the good of those that were around them, bringing their offerings to the feet of the apostles so that it could be distributed and everyone who needed it had it. But the problem was that those leaders, those apostles, trustworthy as they were, and I assume that is one of the reasons why they were put in charge of all of this, they were busy and they were called elsewhere to serve God. So chapter 6, verse 2, this is what the 12 do. They gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Now it's a comment like that that has been used in, pass, in the past in order to generate some sort of layers, levels, stratas of the importance of various different types of Christian work. Here people will say are the top brass, the apostles, head of the pyramid, and they've got the top job to do, uh, the proclamation of the word and prayer. Helping out the widows is beneath them, some might argue. It just isn't as important as what they've got to do. So we see they palm it off on others. And I'm being crass in how I communicate that on purpose because I think it helps us to see how preposterous a point of view that is. Here we don't have a story where different types of Christian work are separated out in terms of importance. Christian work and Christian workers sidelined from social concerns and what have you. 
if anything, actually what we read in the start of chapter 6 here in Acts is a proof text for the diverse gifts and callings that God gives the church. The holistic impact that the coming of the Spirit amongst God's people is supposed to have. They call everyone together. They say that it's not right for them to be distracted in this work, but they do not demean it by any means. They elevate it. They lift it up. Let's read on. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer in the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group, the whole church. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Pocorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Do you know, it genuinely baffles me how you could read that as anything but emphasizing the importance of the task at hand, the importance of caring for those who have not in the church community. Sure enough, the, the apostles are saying that their time and their energy and their attention is required elsewhere. But just pause for a moment and think how vital this story makes the work of caring for those who have not. They could have said, do you know what? This is useless. This whole trying to distribute wealth, distribute food. It's just too much. There's important stuff to do, okay? We can't be being distracted by this. So nobody do it. Preserving unity is too important. We've got one group and another group kind of rising up in the church. So we're just going to get rid of it. It's, it's more trouble than it's worth. They could have said that, but they don't. They say that this needs to have special attention. This doesn't just need to be an afterthought in the life of some. It needs to be the focus of a special few. I wonder if we were in this position, recognising it as an important work, who we'd pick to do the job. Who do we pick when situations like this arise? My guess is that we would have, or we currently do do, we create a person spec, a job spec, someone who would have good administrative skills, someone who is hardworking and dedicated and uh, fair-minded and so on. And those things are sensible, those things are appropriate, but I love the job description that they give you. The people who need to be involved in this work, say the apostles, aren't lesser folk because it's a lesser task. Twice described as spirit-filled, mature believers. Once described as people with wisdom. And once described as those who are filled with faith. Why? Because it isn't just a practical thing that needs to get done. This is an overflow of Christ's work in us by his Holy Spirit. The Barnabas church that we read about and we think, yes, that is wonderful, can only be a reality because of Jesus and what he has done, of how he changes hearts and minds and shapes desires. 
how he, Jesus, the one who comes and lives and dies and rises again and gives his spirit so freely, reveals to us a world in which God is gracious and generous and abundant so that we can take risks with what we have and care for those around us. Do you see? They're not separated off. They're not pushed to the side. They're not less important. They are an overflow of the very thing that these disciples are desperate to spend their time and their attention declaring in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So those who will take over this job, this highly practically practical but massively spiritual work, are chosen more for their character and their maturity in Christ than they are necessarily for their skills and their CV. You know, I was this week preparing for this, imagining what would happen, what would have happened had they just given it over to people who were very good administrators. I can just imagine these purely practical folks saying, well, sorry, turns out that we've, we've run out, so try again tomorrow. First come first serve or if they were really you know like really good at excel spreadsheets and keeping records and things like that they might decide well where did where did the the finances of the food come in from it came in from the hebraic jews or the of the grecian jews and so we'll distribute it evenly as you know like where it came in you you kind of give into the central pot and then it goes back out to your own groups effective efficient but if it was just administrators, it wouldn't be bubbling up. It wouldn't be boiling over from the gospel hope that we have within. Because this practical service is massively, massively spiritual. What is it that James, one of the leaders in the early church, would write later on? What he would say is this. Is that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says that, you know what, if you want to demonstrate, if you want to prove, if you want to evidence in this world that you truly have been changed by Jesus, well then just take a look at how you care for those in our society who do not have. James wasn't revolutionary in saying that. Carried on the exact wording almost of some of the prophets of the Old Testament. And of course, carried on exactly how Jesus saw himself. How Jesus saw his ministry. Do you remember not so long ago when we were in the Gospel of Luke? And we spoke about Jesus announcing himself announcing himself for ministry. When he stood up in the synagogue and he read, this is what Jesus said was fulfilled in his coming. The spirit of the Lord is on me, anointing me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, the year of the Lord's favour proclaimed and declared and not just spoken about in Jesus's life, but realized time and time again, encountering folks who needed his wealth, his richness, his goodness, his kindness to, to bubble over and to boil over into their lives. 
culminating in the most practical thing that he could do, shedding his own blood, dying, rising to life again, skin and bones and flesh and all, not just words and ideas, but reality. You see, this practical thing, this practical thing that the apostles find other folks to carry on, to grasp hold of and to run with, isn't less important. It's, it's just as important, albeit different from what they're called to do. And if you were in any doubt about whether this is a vital spiritual service, remind yourself of verse 6. They laid their hands on them. They laid their hands on because they wanted God to be at work through them in this particular thing that they were doing. Laying on our hands is a thing that we might associate with people going into pastoral, preaching, teaching, ministry or missionary work, evangelistic work. Here they lay on hands so that God would bless, that God would equip, God would work through those who are going to wait on tables. Should we lay hands today on those who are being called to set up the church building for Coffee Cake and Company? Should we lay hands on those who tidy the toys away from our church building in at least seven after tiddlywinks has taken place? Should we lay hands on those who are set apart to check in on those who through ill health have been cut off from the regular meeting together of God's people? I think actually we should. Why not? Any service that springs forth from Christ in us is a pleasing aroma to God. And we want God to be at work equipping and empowering us to do all of these things. So if it's, it's not about separating out things that we do, sort of giving us a hierarchy of importance in Christian service, but it's it's painting this holistic picture. What does that mean for us today here in Amford as those who want to live out the life that Christ has put in us? Well, you've already seen this morning in our service um, that we're highlighting the work of Compassion. You know, Compassion are a global organisation that seeks to release children from poverty, uh, release children from poverty in the name of Jesus. And we support it and we encourage people in our church community to support it because it is, is it's this spirit-filled sense. It's not just folks getting um, together to do a good job, but it's doing it. It's an outworking of Christ in us. And as a church, we've already been supporting Compassion together in a number of ways for a number of years. Compassion let me know that over the last 12 months, nearly £14,000 has gone out from amongst our number, given by people in our church specifically, to help children, the most vulnerable in the poorest circumstances around the world. Children in 12 different countries receiving, amongst other things, meals and health care and schooling and Bibles and love. That's not less important than explaining the gospel to someone, 
That should be a natural, spirit-filled part of our Christian life, our response to life being in us, life being extended and given to those around us. Actually, this morning, if you're moved to, you can hop online, compassionuk.org forward slash hope forward slash AEC, and you can sponsor a child today. I don't think that that is any less important than some other area of Christian ministry that you might feel called into. More than that, I think this story helps us to perhaps um, guard ourselves against the danger of chasing from one God thing to another. The apostles, here they are there. They are men who had a clear sense of purpose and calling from God to declare and to teach uh, everyone around them uh, how Jesus had come into the world, that the Messiah had come to rescue, to forgive, to offer freedom, to offer family and to offer a future hope when he would come back and establish his rule and his reign in this place. But other important, other God things popped up and they robbed attention and priority and time for them. And I fear sometimes we can all be like that as Christians. That there is that danger that we see the good and the important need elsewhere. And we're distracted from where God has called us and equipped us. I love the fact that these guys... Who were called the seven. They were mature. They were capable. Again, very soon we're going to see how capable Stephen was at preaching, at teaching, at articulating the, the big Christian story. But he didn't look down on this work. He didn't think it was beneath him. He didn't think it was less important. I think Satan would love to, in our eyes, undermine that work or take people away from another calling or, or, or make people envious of a different calling. It would, it would be absolute joy and a thrill to Satan if he could get a foot to try and be an eye or a hand to be envious of a year. But here these guys are called and they are equipped and they love it. And so I think that there's an application there for us as well. Not to look down on the things that we can do. That perhaps we're being called to do. Specifically as an outworking of Christ's life in us. But I just want to lastly make this point. That perhaps the problem that they were stretched too thin at this point in the life of the church is because others were getting flabby through inactivity. And perhaps the reason that there are people in our current church life who are stretched very thin is because there are others amongst us who are just getting flabby. That the work of financing compassion, for example, is falling solely on the shoulders of a small few. That the, the food bank or the kindness fund perhaps might be struggling for resources because it's relying just on a few. 
I think we can go way broader and look at ways and places that we could all be spending ourselves so that others would know Jesus more. You know, in our church, we've had this rich history of youth work, of gathering teenagers in the Amford area and showing them the love of Christ, of explaining the gospel to them. At the moment, we're very low on youth workers. You know, in our uh, last, say, decade of a life together as a church, Coffee Cake and Company has been a wonderful ministry. It's been a place where folks have been welcomed in, it's a place where uh, folks have been given time and attention and food and drink. And I can only imagine over the long, hard winter that is approaching that that will be um, required and received all the more. But the volunteer list is very low. We're hoping through God's goodness, the torch, that ministry to those who are partially sighted and blind will be able to restart very soon. But there's few people to work and to minister in that. And it could be the case that a, a few people would stretch themselves very thin in order to make all of these good things, these outworkings, a reality. Perhaps that would be calling them away, calling their focus away from where God has truly gifted and equipped them to serve. But they have to do that. They feel they have to do it because though they are getting stretched thin, there are others amongst us who are just getting flabby. So I would want us to come this morning to Acts chapter 6 and to ask each and every one of us the question, has Christ given me a treasure? If he has, am I using it to enrich myself or to, to bless those around me? to enrich those around me, to grow and to manifest his kingdom where we are. Christ has given you a voice. Use it to speak up for the oppressed. If Christ has given you time, use it to the benefit of those who need it. If Christ has given you a garage gym, okay, point the finger at myself, open it up so that others can benefit from it. And don't think that it's beneath you either. Don't think that it's too great a cost. Because Christ is the one whose pattern was to come. To humble himself. To give all that he had so that others might have everything that they never had. How does the story end? I, I've got one verse left that I want to share. That when people are living together like Jesus speaking, demonstrating, the spirit bubbling up and, and boiling over and flowing out. What happens? Well, it is amazing, isn't it? The word of God, it says, verse 7, spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in numbers and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Would we expect anything else that when Christ is at work in us, when we carry his life everywhere we go, that life would be springing up around us? Or that it would be here in Amonford that way too? That we would be dedicated to all the work that God has called us to? That each part of the body would be shouldering the calling that Christ has given and that we would be able to say, like Luke does at the end of this little snippet of the history of the church, 
that the word of God was spreading here, that the disciples in Ammonford were increasing greatly in number, and that a large group of those who had previously thought that they all had it figured out had come to know Jesus for themselves, to trust in him and to follow him too. That's my prayer. I pray that's our prayer together as well. Amen.